Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. Today, we're joined by Josh Kaufman. Josh is the author of The Personal MBA, which just celebrated its 10th anniversary and is seeing a new edition. Today, Josh and I are going to talk all about The Personal MBA and also what he has learned about the fundamentals of business that don't change regardless of the kind of business that you're in. He also has some really good tips for people that are stuck at one point or another. And all around, Josh is just one of my favorite people to talk to. So without any further ado, here we go. Josh, thank you so much for coming on today. Corbett, it is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm trying to think back to the first time that I was aware of the personal MBA. I'm pretty sure it was right when it came out, which I can't believe has been 10 years ago. Did you think that when you were writing the personal MBA to have this kind of longevity? I had no idea. I hoped and I designed it to have longevity, but there's always the interesting bit of do the plans that you have for something actually come true? And for this project, they definitely have. MBAs can be used by all kinds of people, obviously, and people who typically go to an MBA school are probably planning to use it inside of a big organization, a Fortune 500 or something like Mm -hmm. that. Have you learned some things about doing business as a solopreneur or in very small businesses that make you feel like this kind of an MBA, the personal MBA, is applicable to them in ways that a traditional MBA wouldn't be? Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things, historically speaking, where the personal MBA came from was when I started researching and writing the book, I was working in a big company. I worked as a product developer and a marketer at Procter & Gamble, huge consumer goods product company. And at the same time, I was starting my own businesses on the side. And so the personal MBA, at least from a research and design criteria standpoint, was designed to be the things that you need to know regardless of what environment you're in. And so, you know, what are the principles that apply to the largest of the large businesses in the world? And what are the principles that apply to the smallest of the small? A comprehensive understanding of business should apply and should serve you in both situations. I think if universal principles of business don't do that, there's something wrong with the principles. And so what's been really fascinating over the years It's been 12 years now since I left the corporate world and started doing my own ventures, and I use this stuff every day. And then actually a big segment of readers for the personal MBA are folks who have gone to business school, have worked in a traditional corporate environment, and are now trying to start their own businesses. And they're finding that the things that they learned in their MBA programs aren't really helping them the way that they were expecting it to. I was going to mention exactly that. I was just really struck when I was working in the corporate environment. I worked with a lot of top tier MBA grads and I was just sort of struck at how narrow their knowledge was in a lot of cases and how ill-prepared most of them were to start their own businesses for some reason. And it just, in my mind, an MBA was all about entrepreneurship, but then I found out it was really more, a lot of times, about the inner workings and optimizations of big organizations. And so those principles that you just mentioned, the core principles of all business, it just seemed like it wasn't something that they really focused on. Yeah. Big MBA programs tend to focus a lot more on leadership management and quantitative analysis all of which are useful skills. There is a time and a place for all of those, but those skill sets are not the entirety of business practice. There's a lot more you need to know and there's a lot more you need to do on a day-to-day basis that leadership management quantitative analysis just don't touch. 
And so particularly in an entrepreneurship standpoint where you really need to understand every working part of this business and how the systems come together to make this functioning thing. If you don't have a solid business education, you're going to have a hard time doing that. And I guess, you know, there are aspects of MBA programs that teach entrepreneurship as a specific focus. I think you can decide to sort of major in that area if you know that you're going to go on to work for a startup or to found something yourself. I know that you've done, as you said, a number of ventures yourself. I know that you've done consulting. I know that you also partner with your wife in her business and so on. What have you learned about the really early stages of getting a business off the ground that maybe you have even revised from the first edition of the PMBA until the new edition now, 10 years later. So one of the constants that I always come back to, it's one of the organizing frameworks in the book. And it's one of, frankly, if I could have people only take away one or two things from the book, it's this. It's the first thing that we discuss in chapter one of the book called the five parts of every business. And so you can structure or model any business in five core processes. You have value creation, so making something people want, marketing, getting attention and attracting interest to that thing, sales, so getting people to pull out their wallet, checkbook or credit card and buy one of these things that you've made, value delivery, so giving people what they've paid for, what you've promised, and finance. So looking at all the money that's going out and all the money that's coming in and answering two very important questions. A, is more money coming in than going out? If that's not the case, you have a problem. And B, is that is it enough? Is it enough to make all of the time and effort and stress and frustration and investment in this business worthwhile? If it is, great, you're successful, keep doing what you're doing. If it's not, then something needs to change. And sometimes that thing that needs to change is on the business side, and sometimes it's on the personal side, like this is not a good fit for you. And so that fundamental framework, value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, finance, is the core of all businesses full stop. And so both on the entrepreneurship side, like when I am looking and evaluating at an idea or a new product, something new to launch, or I'm on the consulting side. So talking to somebody about their business, trying to find what are they doing well? What are they not doing well? What should they start focusing on that they haven't been focusing on yet? That's always the first place to start. And it's been really interesting. I think the past 10 years of experience working with entrepreneurs specifically just has really underscored for me how important and fundamental that framework is. There's very little in the business operations standpoint that doesn't fit in that framework in some way, shape, or form. I think in terms of differences or improvements in the book, it's always interesting going back and revisiting how you were thinking 10 years ago. And I'm really pleased that the vast majority of the manuscripts is the same. And most of the changes are either making some specific thinking a little bit more concrete or just adding things that should have been there in the beginning, but for some reason weren't. So for example, one of the ideas, the most important ideas in marketing in terms of techniques is demonstration. So being able to show somebody what your offer does in a concrete, tangible way. I don't know why, but that was not in the first edition of the personal MBA, nor mm. was it in the second edition of the personal MBA, but it's probably the oldest and most fundamental mental marketing technique there is. And so, you know, spending some additional time talking about that idea and how you apply it in your business and how you can use it in order to make people more excited about what it is that you offer, this is a good opportunity to add a few of those things that just make the book more comprehensive overall. I'm curious of the five core pieces, where does hiring or human resources fit into that model? Separate processes. 
So in terms of the core business process of like how the business makes money, you have value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, finance, and you as the entrepreneur or your team, the folks you hire, are involved in every single step of that core process in some way, shape or form. And so there's kind of a meta layer on top of the entire business, which is your business systems. So part two of the personal MBA is all about psychology essentially how the human mind works, how to work well with yourself and how to work with other people. And so there are two ideas in the personal MBA towards the end of, I believe it's chapter eight, working with others that talks about management and performance-based hiring. So how do you find good people? What does a solid hiring process look like? And then what is management really? Like, what are you doing when you're managing people? What should you be thinking about when you're managing people? And it's funny, a lot of people think about management as being the decision-making or the person in charge authority. For good management, that's not necessarily the case. Good management is a facilitation function. You are recruiting and attracting and retaining a group of very smart, qualified people who are good at their jobs. And then the goal of the manager is to make sure everybody is communicating, everybody is on the same page, and nobody is blocked in doing the things that they need to do. So the people who are doing the work in terms of the five core business processes, they have as few distractions and interruptions and time and attention that is not focused on that as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is hitting on exactly why I love business just as a topic, because in some ways it is so easy to describe. You know, you can lay out the five core pieces. You mm -hmm. can talk about the fundamentals of being a business as basically making something people want and finding a way to deliver it to them at a price they're willing to pay. Right. It's something you can fit into a, a sentence or two and yet actually pulling it off and doing that in a way that leaves enough profit for you to want to operate that business is an enormously complex thing, especially once you get into human psychology. And you know that psychology plays not just a role in the entrepreneur's lives, but also it plays a role in the customers that you find and, and how you serve them. And so there's just so much human behavior and psychology involved that it can, despite being so easy to describe, it can be impossible in some situations to make that formula actually work. Yeah, that's one of the big surprises of the first couple of editions of the personal MBA that I didn't expect. Some readers will be like, all right, I'm with you up until the business stuff. And then you start talking about psychology and I don't understand how this is relevant. Like, I thought this is a business skills book. And when you get into the practice of business, psychology is almost the entire game. The business concepts, they're not rocket science. They're very straightforward. They're very simple to understand. I think for all of the concepts in the personal MBA, I think the longest one takes maybe two and a half pages to describe. We're not doing rocket science. What we're doing is very simple. The complex part, the difficult part is working with your own mind to work on the same thing over and over and over again to handle challenges, unexpected events, changes, things that come up that you didn't expect or aren't great for you in some way, shape or form. Bringing new people into the business, figuring out how to work with them, talking to customers, figuring out what they want, trying to talk down an angry person so you can have a good conversation in a way that gets both of you what you want. All of those things are fundamentally psychology topics. And so mm -hmm. if you don't understand how the human mind works, if you don't understand how people communicate and how to communicate with people 
people well, you're going to have a really tough time. And so it was a deliberate decision to devote an entire part of a large business book to human psychology because it is fundamental to being able to operate in a business context in a successful way. And, you know, one of the things that I find really hits people emotionally or psychologically as entrepreneurs in the beginning stages is just this overwhelm and worry about all the different things that need to be done mm -hmm. and almost becoming paralyzed, not being able to decide which of those things to do first and then really just kind of getting stuck in this analysis and optimization or thought process without really getting much actual work done. So how do you advise people to keep from freaking out in that situation when mm -hmm. they just feel like they have so many different things to do at once? Yeah, totally. So the human mind is not built to handle uncertainty very well. There's an idea in the psychology section of the book called threat lockdown, where the situation is uncertain or you think that you are in danger of making an enormous mistake. Your brain and your body kind of go into a defensive posture. Think of it fight, flight, or freeze response. Threat lockdown is the freeze part. If I don't act, if I don't do anything, then maybe this feeling of anxiety or threat that I'm feeling will just dissipate or go away. So that very often comes because people don't necessarily have a good comprehensive idea of what it is that they're trying to do. The to-do list feels nebulous and feels huge and unending in a way that can really really lock people down. And so part of the benefit of the personal MBA is it helps you understand in the broad sense, the big picture of what it is you're trying to do and what are all of the parts you need to pay attention to and how they all fit together. And by having a more accurate mental picture of what running a business looks like, what it entails, the things you're going to be thinking about, if you need to do something, why you need to do something, why it's important, how it helps you. Just having a better understanding of what businesses are that work. I've found with a lot of my clients, just talking through the process and constructing this model of your business in your mind helps to really diffuse that in a way that you wouldn't really expect just by saying it. Being able to picture the totality of what it is you're doing and what's important and the things that you've done well or the things you've done so far and the things that are remaining to be done. There's a calm and deliberate, okay, this is what I need to do next that comes from really understanding at a deep level what it is you're trying to do in the first place. It also is a really good way of helping prevent the overwhelm by eliminating all of the things that you might read on the internet as being super important for your particular business. But when you get to the fundamentals of how businesses work, they're really not important at all. You don't need to optimize your Instagram account when you're just starting a business. And there are tens of thousands of tasks in that particular category of things you just really don't even need to think or worry about. And so having some sort of filter of like, okay, if I'm trying to make this work, here are the things that are important. I'm going to spend my time on this. And then everything that's not in that category, I'm going to ignore for now not worry about, not pay attention to. And that can make the 5,000 entry to-do list much more manageable in a very short period of time.
you know, that's a reason why we introduced inside of the Fizzle membership this concept of a roadmap, really just to give people a way to calm themselves and mm-hmm. feel like they just need to follow a formula. I've often thought that there isn't necessarily a perfect formula out there, and it doesn't even matter if you find the best business formula because there's so much commonality. Like you said, you know, there are these five things, and I think you said full stop, right? Because in any business framework, any MBA program, you're going to find that they touch on those five things and maybe they divide them up slightly differently, but there's commonality there. And if your approach to building a business as an entrepreneur is to sit down and Google something and then just run on this endless treadmill finding, as you said, one screamingly important thing after another, I can see why you might get paralyzed and not get anything done. But if instead you just realize that, okay, there are all these things that I need to know. I should have a big picture. And then if I can just sort of follow step by step and know that I will get to those important things as I lay down this foundation, but I need to actually be doing the work and doing the market research and talking to the customers and all the different things that you know you need to do. A lot of times it's easier if you can just find something like the personal MBA to give you that peace of mind. And the cool thing is, I mean, you can get that overview in you know, the course of a week or something reading that book, and then you can go back and refer to things when you feel like you need to dig deeper. One of the things that I've noticed a lot, particularly with beginning entrepreneurs, is there's this big focus on the business plan. It's like, okay, I need to create this business plan. It needs to be perfect because if I make the perfect plan, then I'll know exactly what it is that I need to do. And I'll just you know, go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then I'm done and I have a successful business. What's really interesting about that is it doesn't mesh with what the reality of entrepreneurship and starting and building a business looks like. There's a tremendous amount of exploration and experimentation that goes into starting a business. And so instead of, I found a lot of people get stuck at the business plan layer and very often they can't verbalize it, but what they're doing is they're trying to make sure the plan is perfect because if the plan is perfect, then when they start working on it, finally, they will not be able to fail. The perfect plan is going to create the perfect business. And I think having a much looser structure, so being able to identify and visualize the five parts of every business for this specific idea, this specific offer that you're working on, that gives you the essentials of all the things that you're going to need to figure out in order for the business to work. And then within that framework, you have a tremendous amount of latitude in terms of how you go about doing those things. And so particularly for new businesses where you haven't done this before, or you may not even know anyone or have anyone in your personal life as a model to say, oh, I'm just going to do it like they did it. Understanding the core process, but then understanding that exploration and experimentation is a fundamental part of how businesses are built and grown over time. Even just having that mindset of, I'm going to try this and I'm going to get this specific type of feedback from it. And based on that feedback, I'm going to either keep doing it or I'm going to try something else. Just that fundamental orientation to what the process looks like in practice really helps calm a lot of anxious nerves because you don't have to have all of the answers before you get started. So if you don't have to have all of the answers, one of the things that I think people have a hard time with is just coming up with a good business idea and knowing what 
makes a good business idea. And I guess, you know, to some people, when you say business idea, maybe they're thinking of a business plan and a fully baked thing. Mm -hmm. But to me, a business idea is just sort of an idea, a hypothesis as to who your customers are going to be, what problem you're solving, and how you're going to do it in a way that they'll be willing to pay. Having that is fundamental to me, but very difficult for people in early stages. Can we talk about that? I know you you mentioned market research as being important in the early stages, but what should someone do to develop their business idea or their business concept and then also to know whether or not it's a good one? Yeah. Okay. We've already talked about the core business process. My favorite way to plan a new business idea is just take a sheet of paper. Those are your five headings value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, finance. And the goal of each of those steps is very, very concrete. So value creation is you're making something people want. So who are you talking to and what is this thing that you are trying to make that you think will appeal to them? My favorite way of planning, you just take a sheet of paper, those are your five headings, and just write a paragraph, really, maybe two, on how you think this would work in each of these five areas. From there, there are a couple of checklists or tests that I really like to use to evaluate the strength of an idea. Just because you've had a business idea doesn't mean that that business idea is going to work. So the first checklist, this is in chapter one of the personal MBA. It's called the 10 ways to evaluate a market. It's a list of things that make very attractive businesses. And we can just run through real quick something like urgency. If you're making something that people want or need really badly, a good example for people who are listening to this in the future, we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So all of a sudden, masks became a high urgency item. Is there something in the environment that people really, really want or need this particular thing right now? If that's the case, this is a stronger business idea than it normally would be. Things like market size, how many people want this? Pricing potential, how much could you charge for it? Cost of customer acquisition. So how much in terms of money and time and attention are you going to need to spend in order to land a paying customer? Cost of value delivery. So once somebody buys, how much work are you going to have to do in order to deliver what you've promised to them? Uniqueness. Is this a commodity or is this something that is unique and only you can offer for some reason? Speed to market. How quickly can you start offering this? Upfront investment. How much are you going to spend in order to get all of this ready to go? Upsell potential. Are there other things that you could sell that are related to this? And evergreen potential. So once you've created this offer, how much work are you going to have to continue to put into it over time in order to keep it selling? And so having a checklist like that allows you to take this very simple summary of your business that you've laid out in the five parts and run it through some tests. If this is something that I can't charge very much for, it's going to require a lot of upfront investment in terms of time, money, and energy. I'm going to have to do a lot of work to get a customer. I'm going to have to do a lot of work to deliver to that customer. And I'm going to have to keep doing that work over and over and over again just to keep selling this thing. Well, you're probably looking at a not so attractive business idea. If there are aspects of the idea that are very favorable. So for example, it's something you and only you can offer. And as a result, you might be able to charge a pretty high price for that. And the market size is big enough that you'll be able to establish a really positive business that will sustain you without a whole lot of worries because you know people are buying things like this, just not yours. You can work through a checklist like this to help figure out, all right, which of these factors are favorable to me, making my job easier, and which of these factors are less favorable. The same goes for thinking about 
what you are offering. And there's a checklist in the book called the 12 standard forms of value. And so a lot of people, when they're thinking about creating a new business, they think about the two most common, which are products and services. But those are only two of the ways that you can create value. There are actually 12 standard forms of value. If you broaden your mind in terms of how you might structure what it is that you're offering, you come up with a lot more options. So for example, I think everybody who's listening to this knows about Fizzle and has experience with Fizzle. All of the courses that you have, it's not a product, it's not a service, it's a type of business called a shared resource. So when you create a course for all of Fizzle membership, you only create that once, but every single member of Fizzle can benefit. And then the financial model behind that is subscription. And so by combining those two ideas, I'm going to make a repository of things once that a lot of people can benefit from, and then I'm going to charge for that on a monthly or an annual basis. Those two forms of value come together to create something new and unique that's just not buying a one-off course or hiring corporate as a consultant. Yeah, I, I love this because people often just get stuck thinking about physical products or services, and then something will come up and everyone's attention turns towards that thing, especially in online business. You know, online course platforms became popular, then everyone decided they need to create a course. The same could be true of a membership platform or anything like that. And so you see the herd kind of all running to this one sort of opportunity, but you're saying there are 12 different ways that you can deliver. Was this value delivery or what were the 12 different categories you were talking about? It's called this 12 standard forms of value very quickly. So product, service, shared resource, subscription, resale, lease, agency, audience aggregation, loan, option, insurance, and capital. In Silicon Valley or in the startup world, you often see these really interesting business models. And they're interesting because people aren't necessarily going after the standard, I'm just going to make a product and sell it directly to the customer. Mm -hmm. They've figured out ways to create value and then earn revenue through one of these other channels that you're talking about. And so it allows them sometimes to maybe offer something for free to their customers or just turn that idea into revenue in some other way. And I think a lot of times smaller entrepreneurs don't necessarily, because they don't have this foundational knowledge, they don't know that there are these different options, then they don't think to themselves. And so they just end up copying standard business models as opposed to trying to come up with something interesting. So think of like a huge Silicon Valley business, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters of the world. They're almost pure audience aggregation businesses. So Google is spending hundreds of millions, billions of dollars every year to maintain a search engine that anyone in the world can access for free. And that doesn't make sense until you realize that the financial model behind it is advertising. So everyone who uses Google or who does a search on it is part of Google's audience. And then Google's job is to sell a portion of the attention that they've created or they've attracted by creating this resource and sell it to advertisers who want to get in front of the people who are searching for specific things. Understanding that that is a model that goes beyond product and services. And if you can attract an audience of people that are valuable to some other set of people, there's a potential business there. Think like an agency relationship where you are selling something that you don't own. You are just being the matchmaker between someone who has something to sell and someone who might be interested in buying that thing. It's easy to think about relationships like that in terms of the traditional things that you might see, like a real estate agent who is brokering a deal between someone who's selling a house and someone who might be interested in buying it. Those exist online too. That's fundamentally what internet affiliate marketing is. You are being the matchmaker between a buyer and a seller. 
there's one really interesting one that people very seldom think about unless they've been taught explicitly about it. Options. Options are so fun. So option is basically selling the ability to do something without requiring the person to do that thing. And so the classic example outside of investing worlds, which where options have a very technical definition, an option is a movie ticket. So you go to the theater, there's a shared resource on the screen, right? The studio that made the movie, they only need to make it once and then they show it at a whole bunch of different movie theaters. But the movie ticket that you buy, you're not buying the shared resource. You are buying the option to occupy a seat in a specific theater at a specific time when that movie is showing. And you don't have to. So if something better comes up, you don't have to go to the movie. You can go do something else. But buying the ticket gives you the ability to do something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. There are all sorts of different ways to apply that core concept of giving people the ability to do something without requiring that they do. In consulting, this is usually called a retainer arrangement. So you pay the consultant every month to be available as a resource. And if something comes up where the consultant might be valuable, you call the consultant and they have a certain amount of time for you, but you don't have to. But by forming that relationship, you make sure you have that resource available when you need it. There are all sorts of ways to apply that fundamental insight of having the option to do something valuable if you want to or if you need it that opens up all sorts of interesting opportunities for entrepreneurs. I'm feeling like it's about time for me to reread this book, if only because <laughs> I've recognized that once you've built a business, sometimes there are opportunities that might not be that difficult to fulfill mm -hmm. that could bring in a whole new line of business. You know, you've got customers, you have resources that you can use to build products and services and so on. And I feel like maybe there's a couple of gems that I'm not seeing that might be right in front of my face. I would highly recommend it. I'm glad some of these reminders are being useful. I think one more thing that comes to mind, particularly on the new budding entrepreneur side of things, this is something that I learned in my corporate career when I was doing product development, I still think is mostly unknown and substantially underrated, which is the most productive mindset when you're trying to make something new is not necessarily the entrepreneur or the business hat first. It's almost acting like an anthropologist. You're going out into the world and you're paying very close attention to what people are doing and their descriptions to themselves of why they're doing that thing. And there's an idea early on in the personal MBA, I think it's in chapter one, called the hassle premium. And the hassle premium basically says anytime you notice something in the world where people are expending time, energy, attention, effort in a way that they're kind of annoyed about, they're not super excited about doing it, it's taking more time or energy or effort than they would prefer, they have other more important things to do, this whole bundle of emotions that's probably For, best described as hassle. Maybe meal prep and planning and shopping Absolutely. that is now being fulfilled by Blue Apron and everyone else. Absolutely. Or even think about a larger business like Amazon. I want to buy a book, but I don't want to get in my car and drive all the way across town to go search for a book on a bunch of shelves and it might not even be there when I try. That was the problem that Amazon solved. And so even think of something as straightforward as a lawn care service. Mm -hmm. Mowing my grass is really annoying and I don't have time. So I'm willing to pay sometimes a substantial amount of money to just make sure that somebody shows up and mows it once week. Anything that falls into that category of there's a hassle that exists for some definable person in the world. And if you can create something that removes that hassle in a way that it doesn't create more problems, that's a profitable business. You don't necessarily have to overthink it. You just need to remove that annoyance. And that is economically valuable. 
Now, can you maybe answer a question that I think a lot of new entrepreneurs are wrestling with? And that is, does my idea have to be completely novel or unique? Or can the thing that I'm trying to do already exist out there as a business idea or as a business that is in operation? I am so glad you asked this question. There is a line of thinking that it is actually better if your idea is not completely novel. There's a reason why. There's an idea, again, very early in chapter one, called the Iron Law of the Market. And the Iron Law of the Market, I think, was best said by Mark Andreessen, who is now a VC, but he's actually the guy who, I think he founded Netscape, one of the early internet browser companies way, way back in the day. And the way he framed it is markets that don't exist don't care how smart you are. The whole idea of like, I'm going to create something that no one has ever seen. And because no one has ever seen it, when I reveal it to the world, everyone's going to be blown away and they're going to throw their wallet, checkbook, and credit card in my direction. I'm going to sell a billion of these things. When you look at business history and how successful companies are often founded, that's almost never the way it works. So it's called the iron law of the market because it, it is cold, hard, and unforgiving. And I love that you mentioned it doesn't care how smart you are because one of my favorite examples of this came from a really smart inventor with a lot of money and experience, and that is the Segway. Remember how transformative the Segway personal transportation vehicle, however you want to call it, it was supposed to really change the way we did things as humans and society, especially in cities. And, you know, they're still around a little bit, but their sales models and just their vision for that product didn't come true. And it was the kind of thing that didn't exist. And so they didn't have any idea of knowing if people would actually want this until they put it in front of them and found out they thought it was kind of dorky and clunky and expensive and so on. We are so on the same page. That is literally the example that I use in the personal MBA to explain this idea. <laughs> um, All right. I probably read it 10 years ago and now it's just stuck with me. It's great. And and we actually now 10 years later, like we know the end of the story, which is Segway was never profitable and they were acquired for pennies on the dollar by Ninebot, which was basically making inexpensive electric scooters. And Ninebot's innovation was taking a scooter, which had been around for a long, long period of time. They didn't invent the things and they just put an electric motor on it. So the iron law of the market was really interesting is that if you were developing a take on something that already exists, you know from the outset you're on the right side of the iron law of the market because people are already buying these things in the world. You don't necessarily have to do that discovery work to figure out if this is something that people value enough to pay for. And so where most successful businesses come from is finding something that people are already paying for or already want in some way, shape or form, and then having some sort of unique development or twist or way of doing things that allows the business to be more successful than it otherwise might be. So think of the transition from blockbuster video to Netflix. End result, people like watching movies. That's not a new innovation or a new discovery. It was taking the hassle out of finding a video that I want to watch and changing the financial model from essentially a short-term lease, you would get a video for a day or two, into an ongoing subscription. And in a way that takes the hassle of going to the store and returning the video, takes that out of the equation immediately. The most successful businesses in the world aren't completely new inventions. It's a new take or a new way of structuring something that already exists and people already want in some way, shape or form. Well, I hope that people's minds are spinning with ideas and possibilities right now after listening to this. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find the book? 
the best place to find the book is at personalmba.com, where you can find links to get it in all the different formats. You can also find an index of all of the key terms in the Personal MBA. I designed the site to be as much of a reference as it is a way to find the book. So recommend checking out personalmba.com. Awesome. Everybody check out personalmba.com. Josh, thank you so much for coming on today. Corbett, it's been fun hanging out with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks to Josh Kaufman for being our guest today. It was great having him on. And as always, you can find the full show notes for this episode over at fizzleshow.co. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.